And here they come again. It's Ian Jess, it's Shearer. That's his third hat-trick of the season. Duncan Shearer completes his hat-trick. It's his third hat-trick of the season. Mistake there initially by Levine. Scott Cook was in there. Ian Jess did brilliantly. Sent the ball across the face of the penalty area. And in steps Shearer. Thank you very much. Hello and welcome to the latest of the Here We Go podcasts. Now as you'll know, um, undoubtedly there's no football at the moment, so what we're doing is we're looking back on some, well some retro seasons, trying to try to bring a bit of entertainment, try to bring a bit, of, a bit of fun and looking back at some of these great and not so great seasons. Tonight we're going to be looking at season 92-93, one which ended on us finishing second place in everything, that's something we're all familiar with from from more recent seasons as well. But this is a this was a very exciting season. There's lots and lots to cover, and I'm looking forward to it. Joining me tonight to to discuss this, of course, as always, is Richard. Hey, how are you, Richard? I'm okay, Martin. Thanks. Be good. And of course, we'll, we'd like to welcome back two guests to the podcast. Firstly, um, a man who's been on here quite regularly. It's Simon Cato. How are you, Simon? I'm very well indeed, thanks, Martin. How are you? I am very good, thank you. And our final guest for the evening is. Uh, well, he's the man behind the red final. He is Chris Creighton himself. Welcome back, Chris. Thank you very much. How is everyone? I think we're all, I think we're all doing quite good considering um, considering the circumstances. So yeah, like I'm saying there, we're going to discuss ninety two season ninety two ninety three. Obviously, the previous season we saw Willie Miller was was appointed the manager in February nineteen ninety two and had um, had a few games to get to grips with the squad, identify what was needed. Interestingly, though, um, Richard, going into this season, um, first season in. Quite a long time that Aberdeen hadn't had any European football. Yeah, and back then it was pretty much inconceivable that that would be the case. I think that was perhaps the the end of a run of maybe 15 or 16 straight seasons of European football. So it was a big culture shock to not be involved. But I think much like we spoke last week on season 2013-14, I think Willie Miller, Miller's first season in charge, which was a full season, which was this season, 92-93, was helped by having those... There was about a dozen games in the previous season where there was no pressure. They were pretty much dead rubbers. We weren't going to go down. We weren't probably going to do anything other than finish mid-table. So he was able to sort the wheat from the chaff, understand what was needed. And yeah, the thing he decided that was glaringly obvious was the lack of firepower. So he tried to rectify that on two stages. Firstly... In fact, before the end of the previous season, he signed uh, Mixu Patalainen from Dundee United. Now, he uh, he played very well in that uh, first season under Miller and contributed heavily to a huge number of goals we scored in 92-93. But he wasn't going to be the out-and-out penalty box striker we needed. So, um, the summer of 1992 was spent in a long, fruitless pursuit of none other than John Robertson. And... Um, it's so interesting the way things pan out because the guy that we got instead of getting John Robertson turned into basically a folk hero at Pataudry, Duncan Shearer. You know, I'm too young to have witnessed Joe Harper. 
I do remember Frank McDougall, but for me, Duncan Shearer is just the best out-and-out goal scorer I've seen in my time at uh, Pataudry. So what a sensational piece of business that was, getting hold of him. Uh, Chris, we look at the, no, the only other summer signing was, um, well, it was quite a divisive one, wasn't it? A man who was no stranger to Aberdeen fans, we'd had quite a lot of battles with him in the past, Roy Aitken. I think that's a kind of typical kind of signing that you would expect uh, a manager to make, especially a, a, a new manager who's uh, never held the job before. Uh, a player of, of great experience, um, a player who, if you like, could uh, could really offer himself as a second manager on the pitch. Willie Miller would have been aware, certainly would have played alongside many of them and will have been aware that a lot of his elder statesmen already in the current squad um, were nearing the end of their ability to contribute on the park and would have been looking for someone that he could trust and rely upon to go out there and uh, and really be the general on the field. Obviously, as it turned out, there wasn't a huge amount of mileage left in Aitken's legs and he wasn't really able to contribute very much uh, on the field. Uh, barring uh, an excellent goal that he scored at Ibrox. But I think in, in terms of what he brought to the team and to the squad and to the club at that time, you, he probably, Miller probably got what he was bargaining for when he made that signing. Um, it, it Possibly looking back, you think that the, the contribution that he made on the field wasn't that great. But... Uh, it's com- it's comparable in many ways to a lot of signings that you could you could name have been made subsequently. Players like Paul Hartley, or Barry Robson, uh, you know, players who have come to do a very specific job, much of which is kind of uh, spiritual, if anything else, uh, as much as as anything that they could offer actually on the park. Um, and to that extent, I think it was probably a, a reasonable signing that 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 got what it said on the tear. I think that the issues really started with Aitken when he moved from, from that job into another one. And, you know, you can argue the uh, positives and negatives of his contribution once he went uh, went into the dugout. And Simon Richard mentioned there that, um, that Duncan Shearer was a folk hero. Another guy, another man who was brought in slightly later in the season in September who went on to be a, be a bit of a folk hero among the fans as well um, was Lee Richardson from Blackburn, of course, who was scouted um, at the same time as Duncan Shearer. Yeah, well, when we signed Lee Richardson, I think uh, I can't have been alone in, in really knowing nothing about him at all. But at that time, Blackburn were throwing a bit of money around. I think the way they had signed Shearer was a bit odd. They they bought him right at the transfer deadline day from one of their main rivals, Swindon, had paid probably over the odds for him, and then were, were getting rid of him because they'd been promoted. And um, they had signed a, a number of players, I think, to get themselves up into that division and then maybe weren't going to be using them in the Premier League. So when Richardson arrived, I think most people wouldn't have known him at all, didn't hadn't really heard of him, but he was coming from a Blackburn team that had just been promoted and was really only being edged out because they had so many big-name guys that they were putting into the, the squad. So w- when we got him, I actually didn't really see where he was going to fit into the team other than possibly as a sort of long-term replacement for Aitken because Aitken started in the in the team for the first few matches. I think my expectation had been that Richardson was one that we would just see see how he got on. But uh, no, he, he turned out to be an, an excellent signing. I, I always remember the the a sort of big turning point for him was the, the last-minute goal he scored away at Dundee. Um, which I think was uh, um, 
you know, probably at that time, I think that was maybe autumn of that season, and um, the Richardson probably wasn't that well known to the fans at that point, but certainly endeared himself to everyone, both with the winning goal and also with a sort of exuberant celebration and with the fans afterwards. Yeah, it kind of settles down after a little while. After he's kind of introduced slowly into the team, he, he finds that he kind of usurps Roy Aiken's place in the team. And that midfield really settles down into one of Brian Grant, Lee Richardson and uh, Jim Bett when he was fit and available that season, which um, I think he only made about 20 games that season, unfortunately. But certainly our best run was having those three in midfield and Ian Jess, I guess, is the linking player with uh, Shearer and Patelainen up front, or maybe Shearer and Paul Mason coming off him. He certainly contributed a great deal, and he probably did take over the role that Roy Aiken might have been earmarked to provide, to provide that dig in centre midfield. On Richardson, I remember his introduction, in fact, was uh, it was a game against Bartek Thistle, and we were, we were struggling, we were going nowhere. It was nil-nil, probably about 67 minutes gone. Richardson comes on, his first act really is to bite into a challenge in centre midfield, win the ball back, pass it on to Brian Grant, who then finds the top corner from 25 yards. So so a meaningful contribution with your first involvement as an Aberdeen player certainly bodes well. So we get the season underway. Uh, we're at home to Hibs in the first game of the season. Two notable things, Richard, from this one come. come. We get an instant return from Duncan Shearer. But more importantly, I would think that the Richard Donald stand was re- being redeveloped that year. Um, the entire se- season was played um, in front of just three stands. I remember, I remember it being a very eerie place to be for the first few games of that season. We kind of got used to it eventually, but it, it was it was very strange at the beginning, wasn't it? Yeah, there was a, a lot to get used to. I mean, obviously, the, in addition to the fact that there wasn't uh, anything behind the beach angle, you had the fact that the away fans were now sharing the south stand. So um, the south stand was no longer the exclusive preserve of the home support. It was a strange, different place, and it also meant, obviously, that uh, for the bigger games, the maximum crowd it could fit in there was maybe 15,000. And throughout that season, you would have thought that people would have been flocking to see the team as they scored the goals that they did and put on some of the displays that they did. Despite the fear of missing out because of the reduced attendance, it wasn't really the case, and uh, crowds were, were sort of down from the season before. Even more so later in the season when the thing was... Um, Richard Donald stand was nearing completion because it felt more like a sort of stadium then but and more unusual why people wouldn't be sitting in it. In terms of the, the displays that season, it didn't seem to put the team off that much. Although I think there was just a spell over the first couple of months where the, where the new side were basically beginning to gel and starting to gel. And it did take a few weeks, but that opening day was a was a very good performance against Hibbs. Again, it took us a while to make the breakthrough. Duncan Shearer, a second half before he scored the opener. And again, just two predatory penalty box finishes from him. Just a, a sign of things to come. And then I remember that day, that the third goal, Scott Booth's goal that day, was a sensational finish. And this was a season all told where you know our strikers posted fantastic numbers. Duncan Shearer got 28 goals, which is great anyway, but... 28 goals and 40 starts, and he didn't take, I think, any of the penalties. What a brilliant return. Mick Supatalainen often played sort of a, as a wide target man, 20 goals from 43 starts. So again, a very, very healthy return. Then you've got Scott Booth, who more often than not was uh, on the bench, 19 goals. And then Ian Jess playing slightly deeper, 16 goals. And that's, of course, without missing Jess missing a good two, three months of the season because of that leg break, what we'll come on to later 
in the show. We were very patchy earlier on. We we lost at Fir Park. We lost at Tynecastle. Lose at home to Dundee United. And we even drew at home to Airdrie, who we'll we'll discuss later. Though we put seven goals past later the season. So Richard's absolutely nailed the head here. That it was it was very patchy. We we didn't quite. It took us quite a while to just get going and find our feet. Yeah, and you could look at it another way and say that in actual fact those results are essentially a continuation of what had been happening, the pattern over the previous 12 months, really. I mean, they, those are not great results and are not the type of results that a team that ends up challenging on all fronts would expect to get. But at the particular time that they were achieved, they were pretty much the kind of results that Aberdeen were used to getting um, in the first few months of uh, Miller's tenure and the, the last few months of, of Alex Smith's. Uh, so that's you know that's a different way of looking at the narrative. The fact that um, it wasn't really a, a struggle to get going or a patchy start. It was really just kind of more of the same uh, until there came a point uh, in the early autumn where just all of a sudden and spectacularly and not necessarily for any particular reason it just completely caught fire. Um, obviously Duncan Shearer was was a key part of that and him getting his feet under the table uh, was probably a significant uh, contributory factor to that. Obviously Lee Richardson's another uh, who's been mentioned as someone who kind of gave the team a little more balance in midfield when he came in and possibly just a, a combination of finding the right personnel, those personnel becoming more used to working with each other uh, and then the confidence that a team gets, you know, results beget other good results, um, may be the, the contributory factors to the team suddenly going on uh, the run that it, that it then went on. But that it came out of uh, unpromising beginnings was, I don't think of itself, a massively surprising thing. I mean, Miller... Uh, was clearly an inexperienced manager, but he was uh, an absolutely legendary figure at the club. Uh, and so, to that extent, he will have had more rope than than the majority of people who could have come in to do that job would have been given. Um, so, in that, in those early weeks of the season, when the results were not as they would go on to be, uh, I think there was an element of a kind of understanding that it was a rebuilding period and that this maybe not honeymoon period but it it was a period in which we weren't necessarily expecting to hit the ground running it's simon we um we find ourselves playing the league cup semi-final now before you people out there might think i'm jumping ahead um and say we're talking about the league cup semi-final but um what actually happens is the League Cup final semi-final was in um, 23rd of September. Um, the season started in August. There was no none of this June and July football nonsense um, back in 92-93. You got a proper you got a proper um, summer break. But yes, Simon, 23rd September we find ourselves at Hamden. We're playing against Celtic um, in the League Cup semi-final, and we get through. Um, a fantastic goal from Ian Jess gets us into the final and sets up the tie against Rangers. Yeah, and one, well, it's a particularly happy memory for me. I, I'd been I spent the summer working in a camp in America, and I've got my flight changed so I could fly back into Glasgow that day and uh, met up with uh, my mum and some friends and went to the game with them. And my my recollection of that game is um, I, I didn't think for a minute we were going to lose that. 
we had a strong record against Celtic at Hamden. We'd beaten them in, on the penalties in the cup final a couple of years earlier. We'd beaten them in the Ian Cameron semi, whatever that was, two and a half years earlier as well. So we had a good record against them at Hamden. And when you look at their squad at the time, they had a, a mix of kind of clapped out old timers like uh, Bonner and, and McStay and Grant and then sort of inadequate signings like uh, Stuart Slater and Peyton and these sort of guys. Um, I don't know if Peyton was actually in the team then, but Slater certainly was, and uh, I think Dovchek was. And they, 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 they just didn't have a particularly strong team, and I, I felt really confident that Aberdeen would, would, uh, would win. You, you describe it as a great goal. I haven't gone back and looked at the goal um, in, in preparation for this, but from my memory, Pat Lyon had a header blocked on the line, and Jess sort of tapped it in from uh, just more or less on the goal line. Um, I don't really remember very much about the game other than once we'd gone ahead, my clear expectation was that we would hold on and uh, go on and go on and win the game, and that's exactly what happened. I think um, even by that time, which you know we'd, we'd been past the '91 um, league decider, but we were still in a in a period where the Dons went down to Glasgow for big matches like that and and consistently won and. Um, yeah, my my full expectation was we would win, and we went ahead and did it. It was, it was um, really good night. Yeah, it may not have been one of the more spectacular Ian Jess goals, but uh, as the man himself said on the the podcast we've done with him, um, which you can listen to elsewhere other than the usual podcast feeds, um, any goal you score is a great feeling. And yeah, that was bundled in from a yard out. I've got to say though, it wasn't peak banter era Celtic. This was a Celtic team that finished third in the league. They only finished actually four points behind us and, you know, we're talking about what a great season we had. So Celtic were, were decent in the four league games between us. We uh, drew all four of them. So um, they were decent opponents and it, it certainly wasn't the, um, the the worst Celtic side of that era. So it was, it was, it was a good win, a comfortable win. But, but like Simon, I, you know, I, I didn't have any sort of inferiority. I thought we were going to win and we did. Of course, we get through that. We get through that semi-final, Richard. We find ourselves playing Rangers in the final, so close. Um, which would kind of run about that era was was that's kind of the story of our finals against Celtic and Rangers. Just so close. Uh, we go. It goes to extra time, and then just the, such an unfortunate own goal from Gary Smith. Um, it just t- turns it their way. Yeah, um, we went a goal down uh, and. We played tremendously well to get back into it. The goal from Shearer that day, you need to look it up. It's a fabulous, fabulous finish. And it's just this sort of moment of hesitation in the away end because it's at the other end of the ground. And um, there's just this moment of hesitation before you realise, holy hell, he's, he's put that in, he scored that. We were on top for the remainder of normal time. In some respects, we played better that day than we had in beating them in 1989. To lose that extra time in the way we lost out as well, obviously with the own goal from Gary Smith, and it's a it's a tremendous finish from Smith. Certainly um, one he'd struggle to to replicate if he tried it a hundred times again. Right into the corner, right out of Snelders' grasp. It was gutting, gutting to lose that. But I, I just remember being really proud of the way we played, and just a belief that having struggled the season before, that we were back competing at the top table. Um, Richard and uh, Martin, um, one thing that some of the people listening to this won't appreciate, but I remember very clearly about that cup final, was obviously we were still terracing then, 
and uh, you spoke about that moment's hesitation when Duncan Shearer scored. Um, there was that moment's hesitation, and then I was lifted off my feet by a surge from the back and carried probably about 10 or 15 yards to my um, to, to my right and forwards, and then there was a bounce, and I was returned back to the exact same spot that I had been standing on before, which is simultaneously exhilarating and terrifying, and probably one of the main reasons why there's no longer uh, terracing in places like uh, Dandon. But I don't know if the rest of you have a memory of that, but the, the, the surge after Shearer scored, I've never experienced anything quite like that. I, I also wanted to just quickly, while we were talking about Gary Smith, mention him. Um, I think, Martin, there was a, a thing on Twitter recently where people were asking about uh, a player that uh, you thought was going to be fantastic and then didn't turn out uh, to be that great in the end. And you had said Cammy Smith, I think, is uh, the answer to that. But to me, uh, Gary Smith, uh, his his career, uh, for considering the player he was in 92-93, um, the career he had, I mean, he still had a decent career as an SPFL player, had two spells with Aberdeen, played for Hibs played a bit in France, but nothing compared to what I thought he would be like. For When he first got in the team, he was a guy who was strong and fast. He was he was coming out a bit like um, Matthias Sammer. You know, he was, he was striding out from defence with the ball, passing it. Just looked like an absolutely fantastic young player. And I can't really quite put my finger on where that all went wrong with, with Gary Smith and why he didn't turn out to be, you know, a real um, top player, a Scotland international, but it never quite happened. But around the time of that final, I know he scored an own goal and we were all gutted for him, but, you know, he was playing really, really well for Aberdeen then. He was a top, top player. I agree, and I think that that's something that people should not be too quick to forget or dismiss. I think that uh, Gary Smith's uh, legacy at Pataudry often comes down to, to two things. One is that own goal in the cup final, which obviously was sheer bad luck. Um, another is, I think he's he's thought of maybe quite poorly in terms of the way that he left the club uh, the first time to, to go to France. I think he was one of the early uh, players to take advantage of uh, freedom of movement and ended up uh, leaving the club without any financial compensation, which you know we now are very familiar with that routine but at the time that was quite an unusual thing uh, for a player to do and fans didn't really take very kindly to that but if we sweep all that away we should not forget just exactly how good a player Gary Smith actually was for a substantial period of the time that he was uh, at the club I mean at the time of that League Cup final he was still a very young man certainly for playing at centre back and he was in a squad surrounded by uh, international quality players, Brian Irvin, uh, Alec McLeish, uh, Stuart McKimmy, Stephen Wright. And yet here he was, this young man, less than a year uh, removed from his senior debut, holding his place at the centre of that defence um, and looking the part, looking as if he belonged there. He was, at that time, a huge prospect. And I, I think to say that he failed to live up to expectations is it's undoubtedly true that his career did not hit heights that uh, I think we all hoped it might at that point and uh, the reasons for that as you say are possibly a little obscure um, doesn't appear to be any particular thing or point in time where it went wrong for him that, that meant he, he never did uh, achieve all that he could have achieved but he still was a, a fine player uh, and he shouldn't be remembered for those for those two things that I think with the benefit of hindsight some years down the line I think we could all agree do not 
diminish the the body of work that he otherwise achieved, um, which was which was very good. Just as you were mentioning David Winnie uh, there, and I don't want to um, dwell too long on the negatives, but it does leap out at you when you look at the lineups from this era that uh, Winnie is a massive weak link at left back, and that we'd had that period where David Robertson had cemented the left back position, and we had signed. Winnie, Alex Smith had signed Winnie um, who he'd, he'd had in the Smithland Cup winning team but he, he never looked comfortable in that position at all and we ended up, as you say, either with Gary Smith playing out of position at left back or with uh, one of McKimmy or Stephen Wright, I think it was mostly McKimmy that played left back when both of them were in the team um, to try and compensate for the fact that we didn't have a proper left back and that I think was probably something that at the beginning of the season when Willie was looking at the squad if we had signed a proper left-back, that would have made, I think, a big difference. just spoke at the start of the show about some of the experienced players coming to the end of their careers, and, and they, some of the experienced players you'd expect to be able to fit in in that role missed a lot of that season through injury. Stuart McKinley, for example, only had 20 starts that season. He'd uh, make 50 the season after and 44 the season before, so um, that was a big miss. McLeish was sporadically missing games, having had barely played the season before, um, you look through the team Bobby Connor might have been a good option at left back even he only makes five starts uh, throughout the season as well so uh, some of the guys some of the other options that you think might have been there to fill in at left back simply weren't uh, available through injury for a lot of that time quite a, quite a decent lawyer these days though Simon <laughs> I don't know about that <laughs> I don't know if it was you, Chris, but I always remember the. Uh, it was either the Northern Light or the Red Final had a, a sort of takeoff of the, of the scream painting with uh, number three Winnie coming out of the tannoy behind the the, the man screaming. Uh, so we respond to to the, that um, loss in the League Cup final. Um, we go on a fourteen game unbeaten run, Richard. Um, Eleven wins and three draws. Now that includes. 13 goals in four games versus Partick this all after, uh, which was 7 0 after the abandonment. Which is a mental note that if it's if the forecast is for snow, maybe send somebody to B and Q and buy more than one brush. Um, and then we also beat Hearts 6 2 as well. Um, a really impressive run that you know we talk about when you, you talk about teams pr- gelling properly, I suppose you would say. Um, we were just absolutely flying at this stage. Yeah, when people remember this season, it's this portion of the season they're really remembering. I'll let Chris tell the story about the brush uh, at uh, Party Thistle because there's definitely a red final or Northern Light connection to that, uh, which yeah, he can talk about. But uh, to. To go there, to go to, uh, you know, obviously not one of the top ranked sides, but to go to Glasgow and win 7-0 uh, is fantastic. But to then back up, and the Hearts game at uh, Petaudry is definitely one of my favourite league games at, at uh, the Old Goal. And I'm sure it uh, is for a lot of other people as well, because, well, first of all, you don't see a 6-2 very often, but just the, the way in which uh, that game went. They go 2-0 up just before half-time, to let them back in it at 2-2, but to then sweep them aside towards the end, and uh, it really was uh, Paul Mason that day, I think, and Scott, Muth, uh, Scott Booth, uh, both tremendous towards the end. And that's um, telling that uh, Duncan Shearer was um, six goals, hat-trick on the Wednesday night at Furhill, hat-trick against Hearts on the Saturday just an astounding scorer of goals. But of course, after that Hearts game, he then picks up an injury and is out for two months. Um, but yet the team keep on. They keep on churning out good results. Again, a memory from that era is probably not 
securing the wins that we probably deserved. There were game a game at Parkhead, which ended up a two-two draw, and we pummeled them, absolutely pummeled them. But let uh, let slip and dropped a point there. Paradise was the same thing um, in December, two 0 up, cruising, really looking as if we're going to hit four or five as 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 we've done to other teams, but ended up drawing that one two two. Just a fabulous spell of football that lasted for two, three months. And yeah, as I say, when people have fond memories of that season, it really is that spell that they're remembering. By the way, those uh, 14 games, Brian Irvin from centre-half scored six goals in those 14 games. What a boy. Uh, we talked about the, the other goal scorers. Brian Irvin got eight in total that season. Blimey. Uh, Chris, OK, we'll, we'll come to you. Let's, let's, have, your, let's have your fur hill story. Yeah, it's, a, it's an excellent story and uh, it's one that always comes up anytime it starts snowing or whenever Aberdeen are away to Partick Thistle. Um, and I have to be have to be honest here, it's usually when it does come up, it's usually the red final that gets credit for it. I don't think we can take uh, full credit for it because as an actual entity in its own right, the red final didn't actually start uh, publishing until August of 1993. So it wasn't, it was at this point still only a twinkle in the eyes of uh, some of the people who'd previously been involved in the Northern Light. It was the people who went on to become the heart of the of the Red Final who uh, who took part in the infamous Broom incident, but it wasn't necessarily under the Red Final uh, banner. What happened, people will perhaps remember the, the, the game itself, the original game uh, at Fir Hill, uh, where the snows really began to come down towards the end of the first half and uh, during the half-time interval pitch quickly covered in a blanket of snow, Partick Thistle, who at that point in time, I think, were, were 2-0 uh, behind, uh, sent out one chap with a broom to try and clear as much snow off the pitch as he could. Now, obviously, uh, that's not very much under normal circumstances, but this was not a particularly uh, reliable or robust implement that he was using either, and as he got halfway across the halfway line, the head fell off from the handle, which he then tried to reattach, and inevitably, to cheers from the crowd, it fell off again a few yards later, and uh, ended up giving it up as a bad job, and the second half started with basically no lines visible, but I think it only lasted about 10 minutes or so, um, until the, the referee bowed to the inevitable and, and abandoned the game, and I think that left a bit of a sour taste uh, in the mouth as far as Aberdeen were concerned, because I think the obvious uh, look of it was that Thistle had not really tried particularly hard to ensure that the game could could last the full 90 minutes, uh, in the knowledge of the fact that had it done so, they probably would have lost it anyway. Um, and so, in the days that followed that, uh, the, the cheeky chaps that were to go on to uh, to form the red final, decided that given that uh, Partick Thistle had struggled so badly to find uh, a broom that could cope with uh, the Scottish snowfalls, that they would uh, do a charitable service and uh, find one themselves and and send it to them, which they did. Um, so they, they posted them this broom, and then uh, the days later, when the match was uh, played again for the second time, uh, John Lambie, who was the manager of Partick at the time. Uh, came out onto the field brandishing this broom uh, gladiatorially above his head as if it was a um, a trophy of, of battle, um, which I think kind of only served to uh, reinforce the thought that they'd been at it a wee bit um, in, the, in the first game. 
and they felt as if they'd kind of pulled one over on uh, on Aberdeen. But of course, the opposite was to prove true. And if uh, if the fans were a bit annoyed at the fact that uh, that Partick hadn't uh, made a greater attempt to to see the game through to its conclusion, then obviously the players were pretty annoyed by it as well, and they took their frustrations out uh, well and truly um, on on Partick that night. And I think most people, <laughs> albeit John Lambie and his uh, fans probably might not agree, but I think most people would say that uh, with the absolute shellacking they got at the second attempt, they uh, they got pretty much what they deserved. And Simon, there was seven goals in that game. Um, further on in the, that, this run we went on, uh, we're playing Airdrie Odens at home, and we give them another a 7-0 pacing as well. This time, Mixu Patalainen gets four. Um, so pick no pick it up where you know, as Duncan Shearer was obviously out with injury, uh, Mixu you know, fill, filling in, picking up the slack immensely. Yeah, I mean, I remember from that game, um, he had a really weird sort of Aussie rules celebration that he was doing after his, his goals, didn't he? He kind of was um, signalling for an Aussie rules score for some reason. Um, Mixu was, to me, a pretty uninspiring signing when we bought him, and I thought we'd paid over the odds from him. I think we paid 400 grand for him. And to me at the time, I remember thinking, gosh, that's, you know, for a guy who looks unfit, to be honest, um, it didn't seem to me like a good bit of business at all. But I assumed that um, Miller had played against him on a, a number of occasions and thought that he was a guy who would have a physical presence. And I think um, probably Mixer, you know, people will remember him for his goal away in Torino, I would think, and also for the four goals against uh, against Airdrie. I think that probably he's the kind of guy who, at SPFL level, will score a lot of goals against the bottom half teams. But maybe doesn't have the sort of guile against the the um, you know the really big big teams and obviously in that season you know we're going to go on and talk about the the, the Rangers game uh, in February and I think games like that uh, we probably needed someone with a bit more um, uh, skill frankly but for for you know a guy with um, you know going to these kind of games against the smaller teams he um, well Richard was reeling off the stats there about all the goals that he scored and for someone who you know. Um, maybe I didn't think was a, a tremendous player. He um, he certainly banged in a few goals that season, and I think uh, that game in particular is one that everyone will remember him for. Although when you look back on the, the film of the goals, some of the defending looks pretty ropey. A uh, few of the goals look pretty soft. I think when you score seven, some of the defending is always going to be a bit ropey. There's no <laughs> question about that. I think the interesting thing about Pat Lennon's success that season, and it was a, a success for him, 20 goals as the secondary striker, is that it probably puts to bed a little bit of a myth about that team that they were this free-flowing, whirlwind, ball-in-the-deck team. They had moments of that, absolutely, but I recall it being a very direct side. The intention was to get the ball forward quickly. The midfield were generally there. Obviously, Jim Bett was played quite a bit, but when you have guys like Grant and Richardson underpinning that midfield, it's about work rate, it's about getting the ball back. Those guys could play, make no mistake, but I recall us being quite direct, and I recall us being more than happy to launch diagonal balls up to Mixu or up to Duncan Shearer, and that's fine. Being direct is fine, as long as you've got a workable game plan behind it. And then, of course, you do have elements of quality in terms of like the likes of Bet, like Ian Jess, being able just to, to maybe uh, pull the strings behind as well. The thing about the Idra game, I spoke right at the start about people not wanting to come out. Well, you know, we'd been on this fantastic run. This was the 13th game of 14, I think. I think there was only about 7,000 in the ground to watch that game. Um, a great shame, but I think the Aberdeen public has kind of almost always been like that, that they're not going to be uh, dragged out to 
to go along to Pataudry for the more run-of-the-mill games. The fantastic run comes to an end um, in February, where we're playing Rangers at ho- we're playing Rangers at home. This was a critical game, Simon. We lost the game one nil. Made with felt fell seven points behind them in the league. It is considered one of the Andy Gorham's best best games ever. When you see some of the highlights from that, and you, I remember at the, t- the time, just it's kind of heartbreaking watching. Just there was we, there was nothing we could have done that day to beat get beat him, could we? No, I, I remember that game really well. I was um, at University in Edinburgh and came back up to Aberdeen for the game, and uh, I think it felt like a big game. I think everyone really felt like it was almost a continuation of the 91 decider that this was another uh, game that was going to have a huge impact and I think at that time with the form that Aberdeen were on uh, there was an expectation that Aberdeen could could go on and do well and I think it, it, it's often you see this in, in games where in the first half in particular Aberdeen were massively on top and made a number of chances and Gorham just kept on repelling them and there was a feeling I think at half time that you know, if they went into the second half and got a goal, then it was going to be a real struggle for us, and and that's exactly what happened. I've seen it billed as as Gorham's greatest game, but I need to be quite careful what I say here because the last time I was on, I was comp- I was complimentary about Ash Taylor and uh, Martin Boyle, and I got dogs abuse for that. So um, I'm taking a big deep breath before I say anything positive about Mark Hately. But um, at that uh, <laughs> during that period, Hately repeatedly scored crucial goals against Aberdeen, and in that particular game, my memory of him was that he'd had a really quiet game in the first half. That we were keeping him under under wraps, and when he got his goal, it was because he pulled away off to the left hand side and got himself in a position where he was going to be um, competing with Stephen Wright for a header. And he knew that if he got into a ball there, that they'd obviously talked about that, but it was a diagonal ball to the, the far corner of the six-yard box where he was going up against uh, Stephen Wright. And at that time, you know, you can reel off the games where, where Haley scored crucial goals against us, but he, um, you know, look, I, I, I dislike him as much as the next Dons fan, don't get me wrong, but he was a, a thorn in our side that we were never able to shake off during that period. And uh, he was big and strong and aggressive and... Frankly, he, that was the big difference. You know, we're talking about um, us competing for the league, and we've got the like of Pat Alinen playing in a similar kind of role. Um, Hately's a different quality of player altogether, and that's what we were up against. And I think, um, to me, that night when you look at the, the the teams and you know the 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 way that we played, absolutely matched them man for man. Except they had Gorham who did it in the first half, and they had Hately who did it in the second half. And I think when we left at the end of that. That was seven seven point difference after that game. I think that that felt like a real make or break. I think that was probably the league gone at that point. Yeah, definitely. The combination of the sort of patchy early season form and and losing that game. I mean, even if we'd won it, we would have been three points behind and they would have had a game in hand. So it would have been a similar kind of idea to 1991 in that the chase would have been on. Obviously, you've also got to remember this is um, in the... Either of the 12-team uh, Scottish Premier League, not 12 teams as it is now with 38 games, but 12 teams and an utter slog of a 44-league game campaign. You know, there would have still been a substantial amount of football to be played had we cut the gap then. And obviously a side which had uh, been on a long unbeaten run could have been buoyed further. So it, it definitely would have been on had we had we won that evening. But yeah, like Simon, I think there was this just growing kind of feeling within the ground. The longer that match went on and the longer our dominance, and we were dominant, 
um, wasn't rewarded. It was just kind of inevitable what would happen. And uh, Tommy Burns, obviously, a few years after, came out with the whole um, Andy Gorham broke my heart and stuff like that. Well, years before that, Gorham had really been at his peak and uh, denying us that night. And the league form, the league form starts to tail off after that. Uh, but we do have some, pro- there's still progress in the Scottish Cup, Richard. Um, a nice, a nice leisurely two nil after two nil win away to Dundee United in a televised game. That's a nice sun- way to spend a Sunday afternoon, always, isn't it? Well, it was it Petardry? So it was. So it was. <laughs> Ian's yes that day was sensational. He got both goals again. I, I seem to recall them coming quite late on, but you know, I was at the game and, and I don't think I've seen highlights since the day so so maybe completely wrong there um, but uh, just the, the different ways in which we could break down teams then I suppose you know if it uh, if the long diagonals up to Shearer and Pat Lennon weren't working you could still rely on a bit of individual magic to break down the opposition so um, and again didn't you know that um, this was the um, sort of era of the 20 million pound Gerard Nixon after all so they were obviously a very tough team to, to crack <laughs> again Having beaten Hamilton in, in the third round, then Dundee United in the in the fourth, we think we've got a, a, an excellent draw in the quarterfinals against Clyde Bank, but that caused uh, caused another upset to our season, really. Uh, it definitely did, Chris. Uh, no, like you say, you, you think you look at that and you think we've got a nice a nice comfortable draw there. Unfortunately, it doesn't quite work out that way. Um, we get taken a replay, and perhaps worse than that, um, obviously there's the the injury to Ian Jess. I think that's what that particular tie will be remembered for more than anything else. Um, and if memory serves, it was a particularly poor challenge uh, on Jess by a chap called Scott Murdoch. Um, also, if memory serves, I think what immediately followed after that was that Lee Richardson came uh, storming in and, and picked Murdoch up by his ankle and dumped him on his arse um, for having done it. And uh, I think those are the two things that that really stand out from that game. After that happened, and it was, I think it was immediately clear the severity of the injury that Jess had suffered. I think it really sucked the air out of the stadium, to be honest. I, I think I recall the rest of the game being quite a quite a sombre and, and drab affair, really. And in some respects, uh, we were quite fortunate that after it all, we ended up still still in the competition and with the opportunity to go on and uh, and win the tie at the second attempt. And in actual fact, if you if you look at it in that in those terms, the, the fact that we didn't win that tie in one go, I suppose, gave us the opportunity to then go on and take part in what went on to be a modern classic of a cup tie in the replay at Kilbowie. Um, match very similar to the one that we've just seen uh, this season, or last season, or whatever we're calling it uh, at the moment, uh, at Rugby Park, the 4-3 uh, Scottish Cup replay win. Uh, you know, it's experiences like that 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 people will remember 10, 20, 30 years later about their uh, the, the the afternoons and evenings that they spend watching their team. So in that respect, the fact that, that the first game kind of was a bit of a non-event had its fringe benefits of some uh, of some type. That being one of them, the the cementing of the the Richardson uh, myth by his uh, his actions in standing up for his fallen comrade. Another one. Um, but in terms of uh, of what happened to Ian Jess, that certainly was was the headline uh, news article of that match. And as I say, it, it was immediately apparent that this was a, a really bad injury. It 
certainly appeared to be, to all intents and purposes, from everyone's viewpoint looking at the stand, it, it, it was clear it looked to be a broken leg, um, which at that point in the season would have been expected to rule him out of the rest of the campaign. I think as it turned out, he did uh, eventually gain just about enough fitness to return to the substitutes bench for the cup final itself, but to no great avail. Um, but he was such an emblematic figure at that time. Um, obviously, a, a player out of the, the local area who'd come through from, from being a youth to being really one of the stars of the Scottish game at the time. Uh, and he was held in such great esteem and great affection by the Aberdeen support that to see him felled uh, in such a, a savage way, really, um, w- was a significant blow, not just to the balance and the quality of the team on the pitch, but also to the morale of the, of the support at that point in time, which obviously had already taken a blow with uh, falling behind at the top of the league. Um, and that was a, a real second of that one. I recall that day in the first game, um, we actually got a penalty kick really early on, two, three minutes in. Duncan Shearer putting it home, one of the few he took, I think. Um, and the challenge on Jess is in the box, and it's an awful challenge, but we didn't get a second penalty kick, I, I think presumably because we'd been given one so early on. That was obviously a, a minor infuriation, but infuriating nonetheless um, compared to obviously the injury he suffered and um, we do a lot of the sort of anniversary stuff because uh, we are desperate for the numbers on social media and you occasionally get opposition fans jumping in and uh, well fans of the reformed Clyde Bank who obviously it's one of their uh, favourite memories that game one of the last big games at Kilbury the replay they were giving it the uh, oh he just he just landed awkwardly on Jess I'm not having that at all I'm sorry I'm not having that whatsoever there was definitely a Predetermination there to to uh, to do some damage. I think. As so, yes, Simon, it was a, it was a, the replay. Um, it's a, well, it was a memorable night. Um, piss and rain at Kilbowie, um, and as as um, Chris said, there four three. Um, it finished up a, a cup classic. Thankfully, with two late goals um, to see us through. Those who were at the Kilmarnock uh, game recently, I think that's probably the the most recent uh, kind of modern equivalent of this. The reality was that we were in serious danger of going out to Clydebank, um, uh, which would have been, uh, you know, a really poor show given the relative strength of the squad, and regardless of you know not having Ian Jess for the for the replay. And I think probably what it showed was that the team did have a bit of dig in them, and also I think. Scott Booth, and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll go on to talk about him in the in relation to the the, the semi final where he, he got a chance and, and took it at the start of the season when you when you you know Shearer grabbed all the the headlines with the two goals and he was a half million pound signing, but Booth's goal in that game was absolutely superb, and you know there was starting to be a glimmer of well you know this is a guy who'd probably been just a bit uh, below Ian Jess in the in the, the pecking order and maybe was taking slightly longer to, to come through. But uh, here was a guy who, you know, there was maybe a, a real player in there. And I think um, that uh, the opportunity that, that he got that opened up for him, possibly, you know, at least partly as a result of, of Jess's injury, but definitely this was the season where, where Booth sort of made his name and was seen as a guy who was genuinely going to be a, a, a first-team player rather than the guy who got 10 minutes at the end of each, of each game. And I think coming on 
or I think he started that game, but but you know scoring two late goals in a game where we were facing a, a, a cup shock definitely was was at least part of putting Booth on the on the map as far as Aberdeen were concerned. In fact, the whole of the, the second half of that season, I was at a game at um, Brockville where Aberdeen won four one. I remember and Jess again to the headlines with a free kick at the top corner, but but Booth played really well and scored in that game as well. And I think there was a number of games just in that second half of the season where he started to make his name. Well, certainly Boothby was the beneficiary, in a way, of Jess's injury by um, getting that uh, first team jersey. I think they tried uh, Theo Tenkat uh, immediately afterwards to try and fill the role, and that didn't really work out. So it was Booth that was brought in, and um, you end up going with, a, with the sort of more familiar belief that the Sabadeen team played with three out of next strikers of Booth, Shearer, and Patalainen. But the reality is that wasn't really always the case. It was usually two up top with one just off and Jess but towards the end of that season it was the three of them through circumstance but yeah that night at uh, at Clyde Bank that we were we were heading out to a side who were in a division below us who had a decent cup record right enough but uh, that would have been that would have been an awful awful way because this was before Stenhouse Muir these things didn't happen to Aberdeen at that time they simply didn't happen um, little would we know, looking back twenty years later, um, how frequently <laughs> it would then happen. But uh, and maybe that's makeup for the ten or fifteen years where we didn't lose this sort of game, but we came mightily close that night in Clyde Bank. And then you mentioned it there, Simon. The semi-final we're playing at Tyne Castle. Uh, we get through one 0 at Hibs. Yeah, well, I, I was having a chat with my pals last night about this because in a sort of likely lads scenario, uh, the Grand National was the same day as the Hibs semi, and we uh, we taped the Grand National with a view to watching it after, the avoiding the result in it, but putting our our betting slips on and avoiding the outcome. My memory of the game is that it was a really really poor game. I, I can remember Boo's goal, which was up at the far end, and I remember being annoyed by Murdo McLeod's behaviour, but I can't remember exactly what he was doing, but he was getting on my nerves anyway. But other than that, um, I, my, my memory is that after the game, instead of going to the pub, we're like, right, we're going to go back and we're going to watch the, the Grand National. And, of course, it was the... Let's say, at half-time, one of my pals said, right... We don't know who it is, you know, this is before mobile phones and all that, you know, don't know who the winner is, but a horse of some description has won the Grand National, and we'll all get back to the flat to watch it. And then it turned out that was the um, the false start, the SNS Grand National. Turned out nobody had won the Grand National, and rushing back to watch it was a total waste of time, and we'd been better off going to the pub. Like I was saying about the Celtic semi, my memory of going to the game was, with a better team than Hibs, much stronger squad, didn't matter if we didn't have Jess, and we've, everyone fully expected to win. Didn't even see it as being a, a particularly difficult game. We're a much stronger team and we'd go there and win. And actually, I think we made quite heavy weather of it, to be honest. I seem to remember thinking that Brian Irvin had played well in the game as well, which implies that we had a lot of defending to do. But um, don't remember much about the game other than the SNS traipse home and Booth's goal. And Chris, we get back to league business after that. Eventually, we finally managed to put... Rangers to the sword, second last game of the season. Willie Miller finally gets that win over Rangers. Yeah, I think from memory there was a touch of the uh, latterly famous game against Celtic just prior to the 1990 Cup final about that. In, in that, it was um, it was a little bit of a, a damp squib kind of affair. There wasn't really anything on it. Both teams uh, made some changes to their side. Uh, kept some players back for the cup final. There wasn't anything 
practically riding on it, the league already done and dusted by that point. Um, so I think to that extent, it, there wasn't really any uh, enormous benefit to either team really from, from winning the match. Certainly it might have been considerably more damaging for Aberdeen had they lost it. Um, I think having experienced a lot of the things that they'd already experienced against Rangers in, in big games uh, in the two or three years that had come before that, if they'd suffered yet another defeat to them or failed to beat them when they appeared to be um, you know, coasting towards the end of the season and playing without a number of their regulars, then there might have been that kind of psychological element creeping in of, well, how on earth are we going to go and beat them when it really matters in the cup final? Um, so to that extent, the fact that that didn't happen uh, and they were at least able to, to to prove that they could beat some form of Rangers team uh, was significant to some extent. Um, but I think that was a more practical benefit to Aberdeen than it was damaging to Rangers, who by that point were... You know, had done everything that they needed to do in the league. They were uh, rotating their squad. They were giving some players chances. They were keeping others uh, fit and fresh for the final. They obviously wouldn't have wanted to lose the match. Nobody ever goes into a uh, professional match wanting to lose it. But I don't think it will have been something that they were particularly uh, disappointed by or, or particularly or, uh, upset their preparations for the cup final. Um, so it had its place, and obviously uh, any victory uh, over Rangers was always uh, very warmly received uh, whilst the club still existed. Um, but that particular one was probably just about as uh, as as close to a bounce game as that fixture ever really could truly become. I think one thing that was significant about that game, if I'm getting my memory right, and I think it was this game is that uh, Lee Richardson got a red card in the game. And um, I think that was a bit of a turning point. You know, he talks about leaving Scotland because of his relationship with the referees and there was a later red card at Hibs. And, and I think when you look back on my memory of the, the red card, and I haven't seen it again since the, the time, was that it was for a really, really poor challenge, uh, an, an over-the-ball challenge that we would regard nowadays as a straight red, and I'm sure we were all, all outraged at the time and all the rest of it. The benefit of 20 years' hindsight, I think it was a clear red card, and really at a time where it was unnecessary, I think it was it was on a, a young Rangers player called Lee Robertson, I think, that, that he, he fouled. And that was... You know, it's easy for, for, you know, Lee's been on your, your podcast and, and has talked about his relationship with referees, but to me that was a real turning point because refs will have seen that and thought, right, well, the guy is capable of challenges like that and we need to keep an eye on him. I agree that he was probably, in some respects, picked on a little bit, but uh, that was a really, really poor challenge and probably um, led to other teams and referees, etc., viewing him in a slightly different light, I think. I think that's always struck me, um, well at least not always, but since doing that interview, it struck me as a very interesting piece of news management because Lee Richardson, when doing that interview for this podcast, didn't mention at all anything about referees. He just said he signed up to do two years up here, then he wanted to go back down south. So there was no mention in his mind, in his recollection, of the referees being a thing. Now, obviously at the time... 
there might have been that might have been foremost in his mind at the time and 20 years later he's maybe forgotten it but I do think that that's maybe just been put forward as a a reason why a popular player would leave Aberdeen you know you want to give the fans something to rile up against I suppose but no that game was it was pretty low key but I think from Willie Miller's perspective he had struggled to get a result against Rangers and as Chris rightly points out had we lost that game that would have been very damaging ahead of the cup final in terms of those league games towards the end they were all pretty low key because the league was gone very very much gone there's one I do remember was against Hearts at Petaudry Hearts had uh, Nicky Walker in goals that's a uh, that's a name that'll send a shudder up quite a few Aberdeen fans. Um, but Nicky Walker was at Hearts at this point, and he injured himself in the warm-up. And back then, sides didn't tend to travel with a substitute goalkeeper. So with Walker injured, Hearts had to play 90 minutes with Ian Baird in goals. Uh, Ian Baird being a striker. Aberdeen obviously take full advantage of this. And um, a 3-0 up after 57 minutes. Uh, and absolutely not in any danger whatsoever. But then, very, very nearly, managed to throw this away against the side with a striker and goal, and we end up winning 3-2. I think it just goes to show how far the eye was off the ball for a lot of those league games towards the end of that season. Well, the season, Richard, is wrapped up on the final day, somewhere that we always enjoy a win, and um, we managed to spoil Jim McLean's last match uh, with a 4-1 win away to Dundee United. That's always satisfying, isn't it? Oh, it was, it was, it was, it was brilliant, because obviously there was a big build-up in the press. Uh, not that uh, Jim McLean disappeared from Tannadice immediately afterwards. I think he was still pulling the strings behind uh, Ivan Golak and, and Billy Kirkwood for the next few seasons. And, and somebody's given me this, uh, gave us this brilliant story this week about um, to go back to season ninety four ninety five. Remember the big showdown game against Dundee United. So apparently they were in the Northern Golf Club after the game. Then so Dundee United's bus was about to leave, so they all piled out the golf club and did a conga line around the bus, meaning that the bus couldn't leave. <laughs> Jim McLean was desperately trying to get off the bus to get at them, but a policeman stopped them. But no, there'd been a big build-up and a, obviously a, a, a big thing about it being McLean's last game, wanting to go out on a high. And it was again a, a shuffled Aberdeen team. Um, some of the youngsters were playing. Andy Roddy got a goal that day. Uh, and it was a 4-1 win, probably one of our best ever wins at uh, Tannadice against Jim McLean. And it's just a, a satisfying way to round off the season. Uh, Scott Booth again that day, very, very bright, very, very good. And it, it, it just gives you that confidence again going into the cup final the next week that um, we've maybe taken our eye off the ball in the league, but we, there's enough in this team to really do something next week. We find ourselves at the Scottish Cup final, as Simon mentioned earlier on. You know, we fi- um, it's that man Hately again. He, you know, we find ourselves two 0 down. He he got the second one, and we didn't really um, until we go two 0 down. We didn't really give a, a great account of ourselves, did we? Yeah, to the extent that a, a Scottish Cup final can ever really be, I, I think it was quite a flat uh, affair really and a flat performance and as a result of that I suppose quite a flat atmosphere. Aberdeen did not really turn up for the match um, and although they did eventually get a goal back, a slightly fortunate one and, and yeah they did have little flurries at the end, could have had a penalty to get back into the match but I think we could all accept that for the vast majority of the game probably had been second best and, and really probably didn't deserve to win the game, which was a, a disappointment, but in many respects kind of was was the season in microcosm, really, the fact that, that Aberdeen had come toe-to-toe uh, with what was at the time, hands up, a really good Rangers team, 
um, and had found itself just short in the final reckoning. There's no there's no shame in that. You know, if you look back historically at the years of Aberdeen Football Club, they would not be expecting to be winning multiple trophies. They wouldn't even be expecting to win anything really in the in the majority of the period that has come since uh, 1993. So the fact that they were that, that was where they were at that time, that they were actively competitive uh, for all three of the domestic trophies, but uh, bested at the death by a team that was just a little bit better than them is no disgrace. It was obviously at the time a disappointment and kind of felt like, um, you know, they they always say that being runners up is is being the first loser. And I think at at that point in time, that's how it felt for us. It felt like we'd, uh, we'd come through this fairly extraordinary season in many ways and had come out of it as fundamentally losers. I think now we can look back on it and, and appreciate some of the things that happened uh, during that season and some of the uh, the numbers that were put up by that team. Uh, you know, record number of uh, of goals in recent times and you know, more games won than they've ever won in in seasons since then. And and look back on it with a, a greater sense of. Uh, of fondness and achievement for it um, but at the time and certainly around the, the afternoon of that Scottish Cup final itself I think that kind of felt a little bit like a tin lid on on the season that you know that we were never going to win it and never really turned up on the day and, and just cemented our spot as being not quite good enough uh, under the circumstances. One of my lasting memories of the game was not so much what was on the pitch, but uh, how intimidating the whole atmosphere around getting to the game and and so on was. Um, Nowadays, when you go to the Cup semis or finals at Hamden, you don't see an opposition supporter at all because you're all guided around the right side of the stadium and so on. But my my memory of this Cup final was that um, we had to run the gauntlet of an enormous crowd of a very aggressive Rangers supporters um, and uh, to, to get our to get into the right part of the stadium and were spat at, shouted at, abused. Um, it was a really, really unpleasant atmosphere. And um, and then when we did eventually get into the stadium, Aberdeen didn't turn up for the first half as well, so we were pretty much out of it by half-time. So I don't have... I, I agree that there was a 15-minute burst of excitement towards the end where we might have got ourselves back into it, but as an overall uh, cup final experience, I would say the 1993 cup final is one of the worst I've, uh, I've had, to be honest. It wasn't quite 1978 levels, but we didn't do ourselves justice when it mattered. Uh, and I think it was that first goal that really was the turning point. I seem to recall we we started relatively brightly, maybe slightly the better team. And I remember, of course, this game was at Parkhead rather than at Hamden. Their first goal, I mean, it was Neil Murray who scored it. I bet you can't remember Neil Murray. It just goes to show that this was... It might have been a vintage Rangers team, but there were definitely still weak links that could be got at. But um, Murray sort of takes a mishit shot, to deflects off Brian Irvin and just squeezes into the net for the opener. And that just seems to take all the life out of us. And we are second best from that point until the 77th minute, basically, when Lee Richardson's deflected effort gets us back in it. But there is, there is a huge penalty shout towards the end. And it, it's handball. And it's, uh, I think it's John Brown who's who basically takes it off Brian Irvin's head. And again, it's just not a decision you're going to get against Rangers in Glasgow, unfortunately. Yeah, at the time, it was just a horrible way to end the season. Horrible disappointment. 
Now everyone can look back on it fondly uh, and yet be brutally scathing about the current side who went through much the same a couple of years ago in 2016-17. Hopefully in time that uh, people give the same leniency to the current team. Were we just unfortunate to, unfortunate that season? That, you know, like you so you mentioned leniency. I mean, look, Chris, Chris is right there though. That was... That was a that was a, a good Rangers side. No, they this was the season they were in the the first Champions League. Uh, was it the Champions League by then? Um, I know they'd beaten they'd beaten no English champions Leeds. Um, they'd gone on quite a good run. No, put out like Marseille. I think they played Marseille as well. We were very good, and I mean, you talk. We also put it up on Twitter that they were going to be doing this pod, doing this podcast and covering this topic. People, no, people are largely the responses were all largely positive. Um, you know, despite the fact that we didn't win. We didn't win anything. It was no, and it was second place in in everything, um, and it was no. People's memories are no, are, are brilliant attacking football. Lots of goals, and I think it was. I think we scored something like eighty seven goals that season, um, in the league. So it, there's a lot. There's lots to be lots to be positive about. It was just that, that we came against a side who were were just that little bit better than us. We we had a good team. We had a good team, but the record we posted that season would not quite ever really going to be good enough for you to win the league, no matter how how good the team you were up against was. You need to go a little bit further than we did. And maybe, of course, if we'd still been in contention towards the end of the season, we would have turned some of those draws and defeats later in the league campaign into victories. And maybe we would have achieved a higher points total, run them a bit closer, absolutely. And we did score 111 goals over the course of that season. More than uh, two goals a game. Obviously a huge increase in what had uh, gone bef- in the season before with the change from Alex Smith to Willie Muller. And more than we'd done in any season since we'd last won the league in 84-85. So there were a lot of things, a lot of signs of positivity, a lot of things to to be proud about. But I think it was, the team did lack a certain something. I think ultimately Willie Miller believed that as well. Coming so close and not doing it, and then the following season again finishing second, pretty mediocre league record the following season. But I think not being able to get over the line in any of those competitions probably encouraged him to make the wholesale changes that he did ahead of season 94-95. And obviously uh, that did not turn out well at all. I think by that point, Rangers were not at the peak of their spending, but they, they were still spending a lot of money in European terms, never mind Scottish terms. And if you look at the... You've been talking a lot about the League Cup final, but the, their, their sub who was involved in the, in the, um, the winning goal was Alexei Mikhailichenko. He was a, a, a world-renowned player. He was a recognisable player that had been playing for Russia in the, in the Euros and the World Cup and so on. So, you know, the kind of level of player that would be completely out with their grasp nowadays, but that they had a sub in those days. The, the, the world was a lot different then. They had a number of players in that squad that we simply couldn't have competed for. And as Richard's pointed out, they also had some weak links that we, we could have, have and probably should have made more of. When you look back on it, the reality is their cost base, their spending was way different from, from Aberdeen's and they were able to have players in crucial positions, talked before about Gorham and Haightley as being two good examples, but there's others as well, where they were just a bit stronger. I mean, it's a very similar situation to the last couple of seasons, well, up until last season, I suppose, that Derek McInnes and Aberdeen have had to face, except the spending differential is probably more now, but... Celtic have doesn't get you the sort of top 
level signings that the Rangers were able to make in 92-93. You talk about the likes of Mikhailichenko. There's obviously Lydrop, there's Gascoigne that come in the years after that. That 92-93 season, it might not have been the peak of their spending, but it probably was their best team. It's certainly the only team that really did anything on the European front whatsoever. In some respects, unfortunate to run into that, absolutely. You certainly believe that um, had we hit that peak that we did under Miller a couple of years later, there would perhaps have been trophies waiting for us. I think it was 2.07 points we got per game then. To win the league, unless you've got a really tight league like 1970-80 and a lot of teams taking points off Rangers, which there weren't, then you really needed to get up to 2.2, 2.3 to really have a chance. So we weren't quite at a level where we were going to really seriously win that league. The Cups, obviously a huge disappointment, particularly the Scottish Cup, as we've said, because we didn't quite make it on the day. Chris, I think Richard makes a pretty good point Point there. I mean, did this season a near success? Did that lead to Willie Miller trying to change it too much a couple of years later? I don't think there's much doubt about that. I think that if you look back on what became of Willie Miller's managerial career, that season um, of, of near success is, in effect, the thing that fatally undermined his uh, potential to go on and, and have a successful managerial career. Miller, you have to remember, was a player who uh, was used to winning, winning everything. Um, and for him, that season fundamentally represented a season of not winning. It told him that his team, his approach, what they had done was not good enough um, to achieve the targets that he uh, expected of himself and of his team. Uh, and that ultimately... Uh, in the summer of 94, seemed to lead to him saying, well, that hasn't worked, uh, so we have to try something else. And the something else that he put in place uh, was not of the quality which had come before it. And ultimately, in his attempt to roll the dice and, and make, a, make a positive change, he ended up making a, a change which turned out to be very negative, both for himself and over an extended period in the years to come. Uh, for the club as well, uh, it's it, it's not a knock on Willie Miller that he that he took the decision to attempt to do that. I mean, it, it's there's an argument that it stands in stark contrast. Some people uh, would say um, to the uh, attitude of of some of those who've come after him, notably Jimmy Calderwood, maybe Derek McInnes could be accused of it as well, of kind of settling for the best that it appears can be achieved at a particular time. Um, Willie Miller certainly was never as a player and thereafter as a manager the type who would do that. If it is true to say that in 1992-93, up against a really strong uh, Rangers team, second place in all three competitions wasn't bad and might have been the best that him and his team could have achieved uh, to the outside viewer, it would never ever be that uh, for a man like Willie Miller because that was never good enough. So, you know, it's it's fair enough that he that he felt that that was failure and he wanted to, to change that and do better than that. Um, unfortunately, the the way in which that uh, attempt was gone about um, didn't manage to to generate the results that he would have hoped for and and ended up in, in quite an acrimonious 
period in, in, in the club's history. But Chris, he had a problem brewing anyway, didn't he? Because he, he had McLeish and Bett and Connor, who had been three stalwarts for the best part of 10 years, and in McLeish's case, a lot longer than that, were all going to be at or about retirement age. And then he had others like Mason, who was going to leave, Richardson, who was going to leave. So he was going to lose crucial players. And a bit like we find with Derek at the moment, if you lose a bunch of really important players all at the one time, it's very, very difficult to go and, to go and replace them. And I think, you know, it's probably right that, you know, uh, you guys will probably, like me, remember a 2-0 defeat at Tynecastle when Bet was running the show for Hearts still, and maybe we, we let him go slightly too early. You know, the passage of time was going to take these, these key players away from us anyway, and he was going to have to do something to go and replace them. And the reality is that it maybe wasn't so much the grasping for the stars that was the problem it was the choice of recruitment that he made um, the problems that we had in the 94-95 season were to a significant degree caused by inadequate recruitment rather than a recognition that he had to replace what he what he had because to me that was coming anyway that brings our podcast to an end for this week um, a hugely entertaining hour and a bit of discussion there uh, what was a very memorable season now before we do leave you obviously know if you're a regular listener to this podcast you know you find us on usually find us on all your social all the other platforms and uh, we do have other podcasts we're releasing at the moment we're doing some interviews with some ex-players they're going to be up on patreon you can find the link the facebook and the twitter account you can find the links there and um, there's a small charge for them and um, all the all the money will be going to aberdeen for all if you're interested in hearing what the almighty godlike Ian Jess has to say, and I'm sure you all are, um, you'll find the link. It's the most recent one we've done. It was released on Friday evening. Uh, please do give it a listen. And like I say, all the pro- proceeds do go to Aberdeen for all. So we hope you'll listen to that. Until then, um, I'm very conscious that I think I almost gave Rangers uh, a compliment there. So I'm going to go wash my mouth out with acid. Until we speak to you guys again, goodbye and come on you Reds. Mm-hmm.